What do you think student David would think about <laughs> headmaster okay. David? That's, that's a very good question. I, w- I, I would like to think that um, if I were, were looking forward that I would be uh, proud of some of the things I've achieved. Uh, I was quite headstrong when I was young, but I feel I'm quite headstrong now. So I think I, I, I would like to think that I was proud. I would probably feel some degree of embarrassment because one of the things I feel that most children think is that uh, the adults that they spend most time with are probably the adults that they're most likely to grow up to be like. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Hey, it's your podcast host, Karsten, and today I'll bring you an interview with the founding headmaster of an international school. It's Brighton College. They just opened up a campus last year. So the college and the Brood in Bangkok podcast pretty much started at the same time. And from what I hear, I actually have more subscribers than they do. To be fair, theirs are all aged two to nine years old so far, though they'll be adding... uh, Uh, higher grades, uh, I believe, this year. Though the reason I wanted to talk to them is that schooling and education topic is one of the most trickiest ones for expats in Thailand. On the one hand, you have government schools with very big class sizes and a lot of concerns about teaching quality and how much it'll prepare students for future attendance at universities or even the job market. On the other hand, you have really nice private schools, which can kind of cost you the equivalent of a new car every year. And in between, of course, there's the whole range. In the conversations I had with expats the last few months and the ones who said they're actually thinking about leaving Thailand, I think... Uh, the availability of education or just general family issues was probably the primary reason that I've heard, especially from those that weren't here on a expat package or limited time assignment to begin with. So I think it's a really important topic and I find it really interesting to see at one of those top tier schools where people spend a significant amount of money on their kids' education, what do you get in return? How is that kind of school run? I mean, that headmaster, he's not just, you know, handing out attention. He's basically CEO. Those are huge land areas that uh, the schools sit on and they have to think about, okay, how do we make use of that? How do we also bring in the expenses we have for the school? So it's a really education, not just from philosophical and, you know, um, raising kids point of view, but also from a business point of view. And I had the chance to sit down with David Tung, the founding headmaster of Brighton College, and ask him all these questions about his own background, how he became, how he came into that position, what he thinks about education, what his thoughts are about the business of education And it makes for a very interesting conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. As with previous episodes, I had the help of Lou Popjecki in helping me with audio production and cleaning up the sound for this episode. So thank Lou if this sounds really smooth in your ears. 
Welcome to Brood in Bangkok. It's your host, Karsten. And today I'm here with David Tung, founding headmaster of Brighton College. Hello, David. Hi there. Thank you for having me today. So Brighton College is a what? Brighton College is an international school, and we're the, the sister school of Brighton College in the UK, which is currently the highest-ranked uh, co-educational school in the whole of England. And there are over 9,000 of them, believe it or not. What's a co-educational school? It's a school with both boys and girls in it. Uh, so many uh, traditional independent schools, private schools in England, are, are single-sex. Um, so of all the co-educational schools, Brighton's currently ranked number one. Huh, that's interesting. So there is one that is only for boys, only for girls, that has a higher ranking? We're currently ranked fifth of all schools. Um, the, the four above us are all, all girls' schools. Um, and it may be down to the examination styles, but uh, currently um, girls outperform boys in, in certain key subjects. So um, for some very selective all-girls' schools, they're, they're able to secure slightly higher academic results. But we're, we're, we're ranked five overall um, and the top uh, that has both boys and girls within it. So you're the best-ranking school that allows boys in. That's correct, yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How did you personally come to be founding headmaster of Brighton? In Bangkok. You started out in a somewhat smaller place. Well, I, I, I mean, to give you a bit about my background, I, um, I've worked internationally for pretty much all of my professional career. I started out in, in Madrid, um, in, in Spain, and uh, I was deputy head, headmaster of the, uh, the oldest British uh, international school in Spain and one of the founding uh, members of the National Association of British Schools in Spain. And during that time, I worked as a school inspector, but also deputy headmaster of the school. From then on, I, I took my first headship and moved to uh, South America. And uh, I worked in a, a British overseas territory, the Falkland Islands, which uh, was about as far removed from Madrid and London, where I'm originally from, as you can as you can get. Uh, it's got a population of about uh, of about two thousand people, permanent residents, and then about two thousand military personnel who are stationed there. With occasional direct flights from London, uh, there's no direct flights. Uh, the the there's two ways of getting there. One is is through is through Chile, um, and the other route is the route that that I always took uh, is through Ascension Island um, via a military flight from from Bryce Norton. So it's one of the most remote places in the world. Uh, I was head of the school during my time there. I was also director of education for for, for the islands. So um, I managed to get the opportunity to start shaping educational policy uh, within the islands, which was was very exciting. From there, I joined Brighton College Family of Schools and, and set up um, Brighton College Alain, which was our second overseas school. Um, it opened very successfully, where it's currently the, the, the highest ranked school within the UAE in terms of its inspection reports. And that's also in gets, Abu Dhabi, right? That's in Abu Dhabi, yep. And uh, it uh, recently got the highest GCSE results of any school within Abu Dhabi. Um, and about uh, 18 months ago, I moved across here to, to, to set up our, our school here in Bangkok. I'd been working on the project uh, along with my headship in the UAE concurrently for about a year. But I moved over permanently about 18 months ago. And uh, we've opened our, our pre-prep school already uh, very successfully. And we're just about to open our prep and senior school uh, as we speak. Wow. So you're the headmaster. That's right. Found, founding headmaster. Um, and the, the job of a founding headmaster is slightly different than, than, than a standard headmaster because there's all sorts of things that you have to get involved with that um, ordinarily would, would already be set up or be put in place in an established school. 
So I get the opportunity to come and set up a human resources department, work with a bursa on setting up financial systems and making sure that the architect's plans are, uh, are to our requirements and making sure that the construction project's working as it should be. Um, and a whole host of other really exciting things, which, uh, which really keeps me, keeps me both very busy, but also very, very excited on a day to day basis about what I'm doing. Mm. So as a founding headmaster, you, kind of half ceo half yeah, head of yeah teacher body yeah i mean you you could say um, i mean the, the role of the headmaster has become increasingly uh, the, the the ceo of the school and uh, and particularly a, a, a multi school campus such as ours where we have lots of or a number of different schools on the same site each one of those individual schools has their own head teacher um, so there's a lot of roles that would traditionally uh, uh, form part of a, a CEO within an organization of this size. Mm. How do you split your day between those two roles, the educational side and the CEO I, side? I always try to bear in mind that the most important thing is the, is, is the children. The reason I became an educator is because I love spending time with with young people. I find them incredibly inspiring. And um, I love teaching. Uh, I still uh, maintain a teaching commitment. And it keeps me focused on what are the right things to be working for? What are the right targets? What is going to have the greatest impact on the, the children that are fortunate enough to attend this school? Um, so even the times where I'm taken out of school on, on, various, um, uh, on various activities or for various businesses... I try to keep that in mind and ensure that everything I'm doing is, is about building the very best school for the children that are within it. When you are in your role as a CEO and you look at how do you spend the school's money, how do you, like, I mean, there are things that are very visible. Like when I drove here, I saw the huge campus, really nice buildings that are currently being built here. And then there's things you don't really see. And maybe that parents who come here to decide if they enroll their kids don't really see. So, for example, is there student counseling or things like that? Those are not visible. How do you decide how to spend between the visible and maybe the important but less tangible? That's, that's a very good question. I, I mean, first and foremost, our greatest asset is our teaching staff. Um, we invest very heavily in making sure that we can provide our teaching staff with the kind of package, which means that we can recruit the very best teachers. So 20% of our teachers come directly from Brighton College, and we know that they are outstanding teachers because they're from within the family. Brighton College means? Um, Brighton College UK or Brighton, one of our existing sister, sister so people schools. People who graduated from those? Uh, no, sorry, the, the, the teachers who work within them. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, we know that they've gone through certain training processes, certain induction processes that enable them to be inspirational teachers. And obviously, we have a lot of information about them uh, when they're looking for a move uh, to, to, to one of the other campuses. Um, 70% of our teachers we recruit from leading independent schools uh, in, in the UK. So I, th there is a real tangible difference between state schools within the UK and what, what, what are provided within state schools and the very best private or independent schools, um, which the state sector can't hope to replicate, uh, the, the sort of whole child provision where we're looking at building character, building resilience, um, providing them with the greatest range of extracurricular activities. So where are the remaining 10% from? So the remaining 10% are mostly from leading international schools. And we do believe that having a, a core within the staff of, of individuals who have worked 
overseas and understand, um, for example, what it's like to teach children who come from a, a wide range of different cultures, for example, um, people who understand what it's like to move country and settle into a country is very useful. If we took exclusively teachers who were based in the UK, we would have to work much harder as a leadership team to make sure that they were settling into the country. Um, having that core of staff who, who understand what it's like to live and work overseas really helps build a founding team. Mm. What is for you the indicators of performance that you're doing a good job? Um, okay, so uh, obviously the growth of the school and uh, the, the fact that we're growing... Enrollment rates. En enrollment rates, uh, the, the fact that we've grown um, in excess of 200% in, in, in just a year. Do you get like calls from the UK saying, David, um, we got to talk about uh, the numbers? Or um, no, not at all. It's, it's, I get lots of calls from the UK. Um, obviously, having worked with them for a number of years, uh, they have a, a lot of trust in me. And uh, I'm certainly not micromanaged by by my colleagues in the UK. Um, it's a much more um, uh, consultative uh, relationship. Uh -huh. So, if Do we you have key performance indicators, of course, yeah, of course, and that's exactly as it should be. So, um, related to the profitability of the school, related to the enrollment numbers, but principally, my my uh, principal key performance indicator is related to the success of the school in terms of its academic performance. So the, the, the progress that the children are making. How do you measure that? We have a, a, a range of tracking data that we can use to see the, how the younger children are getting on. And obviously examination results provide an indication, uh, an indication of the success of our academic team. Um, so ensuring that we receive the very best academic results, but equally for younger children who don't have external examination results, demonstrating that we're um, providing our children with the best possible education. And I can give you one very good example of, the, of that over the, the, the course of last academic year, the average child made in excess of two stay nine of progress uh, within their um, English writing and English reading. Two stay, two, two stay nine. So what that basically means is that a child has made in excess of three years academic progress. The, the average child has made in excess of three years academic progress in a single year. So we've effectively added two years to every one of our children's performance over the course of this year. What are you going to teach them five years from now then? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, the, the key to, to, to what we do here is, is about having high expectations of having high expectations of our staff and making sure that they hold teaching as not just a passport or particularly international teaching as a passport to to traveling and, and, and seeing the world, but that, that they view it as, a, as one of the most challenging professions there is and, and one of the most rewarding professions. So having high expectations for our teachers, but also having high expectations for every child that comes into the school. We are a selective school, but within that, we have a range of abilities uh, amongst our children. And some children enjoy some things, some children enjoy other things. Mm -hmm. To talk about the children that you have here right now, how old are they there? Uh, so within our first year, um, we had them from the age of two to the age of nine. And for next year, we're opening up to 15. So we, from next year, we'll have two to 15. But last year, we had two-year-olds to nine-year-olds. Oh, that's going to add a whole lot of different um, problems <laughs> yeah I mean I my background is with older children and uh -huh. and I um, adolescence is a, is a wonderful time in an individual's life and young people teenagers in, in particular uh, they've yet to form their their, um, their their views they're not so close-minded as as the majority of adults that you meet and and that's a that's a massive opportunity to be involved professionally with with people that still 
haven't made all the decisions that they're going to make. They don't know what kind of person they're going to be. And we very much see our role as, as helping them be the very best version of themselves they can be. Mm -hmm. What kind of problems land on your desk? Like if uh, I assume the nine-year-olds don't smoke, but um, <laughs> like what kind of student problems land on your desk? Yeah, surprisingly few. Um, our, I'm very proud of the children that we have in this school. Their conduct is, is absolutely phenomenal. The way they look after each other has been a source of constant delight for me. And we have a, a really lovely culture of kindness. And perhaps because... Um, uh, because of our size, the, the older children, um, have really stepped up to the plate. They've shown such a, such a high level of maturity for a nine year old, um, great leadership skills. Um, they look after the younger children in the school. There isn't that divide between older children, younger children. It, it doesn't seem to exist here. And that, that's, that's, that's lovely. And it, a lot of that comes from the, the culture of mutual respect that we have, the teachers very much respect the children, mm. and the children very much respect the teachers and each other. While they're nine. I, look, I mean, you all have a large body of experience to draw upon when yeah, you're talking yeah. about a yeah. larger range of ages that you deal with. And like, did you have these things? Like when you were like in Abu Dhabi or in the Falkland mm. Islands, Madrid, you yeah. know, do Do you get like a letter on your desk that says so and so was smoking in the bathroom? Uh, absolutely. Or... Uh, yeah, obviously, there will be times when um, even the schools with the highest behavior expectations, there are children that uh, that, that, that test the limits of the uh, of the rules and the, the, the standards that you expect. Um, that's uh, run of the mill for headmasters, and will will regularly be involved in helping to mitigate against that and helping to resolve any issues that do arise. Um, I think in, in certain, in certain instances, um, there is an ex expectation that perhaps people who don't spend a lot of time around, around teenagers have that they're going to behave in a certain way. And my experience actually is that that's, that's very much not the case. And, uh, and individuals who test boundaries and who, who play up tend to be very much in the, in the minority. And where you have a culture where that's seen as, as a minority action and seen as, uh, as something that actually isn't within the, the, the realms of uh, expected behavior. Um, it really does help to mitigate against those, those issues arising. But of course, there, there will always be instances that crop up. And, and having a clear structure to deal with such instances is, is, is really important. So Thailand has a bit of a problem in its educational system. Um, also with maybe its teenage um, population in general, it has one of the highest teenage pregnancy rates in the region. Mm -hmm. What do you think your reaction would be if you had in a future student that became unexpectedly pregnant? I, it's, it's something I, I, I dealt with during my time in the UK, actually, as my first uh, housemaster position in the UK. Uh, one, of, one, of, um, one of my tutees um, experienced that precise situation. And it's something that requires very careful planning, and it also requires um, very careful handling. I think it's not something I've experienced in an overseas context. Um, some uh, consideration of cultural uh, context must be considered when looking at a situation such as that. Um, but it's about providing the appropriate pastoral support f for the child, liaising very carefully with the parents of the child, and making sure that the situation is resolved in the most successful way possible. Mm. What would you see as your role as a headmaster in that? Uh, in supporting the pastoral team to ensure that the child is able to progress through their education um, in the way that such a, a potentially difficult situation is not detrimental to their to, to their future. Mm. 
you come across as someone who is very measured approach to your role as a headmaster or founding headmaster. What do you think student David would think about headmaster David? <laughs> that's, that's a very good question. I, w I, I would like to think that um, if I were, were looking forward that I would be uh, proud of some of the things I've achieved. Uh, I was quite headstrong when I was young, but I feel I'm quite headstrong now. So I think I, I, I would like to think that I was proud. I would probably feel some degree of embarrassment because one of the things I feel that most children think is that uh, the adults that they spend most time with are probably the adults that they're most likely to grow up to be like, but least likely to want to grow up to be like at that particular point in their lives. Um, my morals and my values uh, have remained remarkably consistent from a, a very young age. I, I, um, I had quite a, a strong moral compass instilled in me from my parents. And I think that um, I, I, I've been true to that and I've achieved um, uh, many of the things that I, I would have hoped to have achieved. I was quite a talented athlete in my, in my younger days. So I, I perhaps feel some degree of uh, disappointment that I hadn't uh, managed to um, achieve more in that area. Yeah, I, I, I was becoming a professional. Yeah, well, I, I was I, I was in the British Athletics Championships as a as an eighteen year old, which was is, is relatively young to to perform at that level. Uh, unfortunately, I, I was quite badly injured at university when I was an elite athlete program, and um, what what is now considered probably too much training, I I was experiencing, and uh, and obviously it took a an impact on my on, on my legs and uh, and I was quite badly injured and uh, I, I still run I, I I run the odd half marathon and uh, and and 10k race um, but obviously professionally um, the, the injury halted uh, any, any aspirations I had there so I'd probably feel some degree of disappointment about that but uh, I'd like to think I'd be very proud of what uh, older David has achieved. You you the headmaster you, you wish you would have had when you were in school. Well, I went to an all boys school with a very stern, very elderly headmaster who I spoke to maybe three or four times during my, my school career. Um, and I would like to think that there is no child in this school that feels that they don't know me as an individual. And there's no child that doesn't feel that I take an interest in them and their passions and their aspirations. What were the biggest shenanigans you got up to when you were a student? <laughs> I um, I was actually a relatively good pupil. I think um, I, I flourished at school in my later years. I think I struggled quite a lot at the start. Did you ever get detention? I was quite chatty. Um, I, I did get a couple of detentions. What was the prime cause for that? So the first one uh, was, was in a history class um, when I banged my knee on the table and um, I, I, I exclaimed rather loudly, that I was in pain and uh, and the, 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 the history master gave me a detention for uh, making animal noises. And uh, the second one was when I was a sixth former. During a study period, um, a group of us were playing a card game and uh, and uh, the deputy headmaster um, took to great offense at this and, and, and gave me a detention. So I, I, I received two during my time at school. Um, I think I was relatively well behaved <laughs> but you know i was quite chatty um i i've always liked trying to make people laugh usually failing to do so but um uh, those sorts of things inevitably led to the odd ticking off which school was that that you went to i went to watford boys grammar school which is in uh, just north of london is it a school comparable to brighton 
It's uh, in some ways yes, and in in some ways no. It's 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 state it's a state funded grammar school, so it's it, it was academically selective, um, in the same way that Brighton is. It's all boys. We I personally believe coeducational education is superior. Uh, it gives it gives a greater range of opportunities, a greater range of experiences. I don't believe ferociously in, in single-sex education. I think uh, for my children, certainly, I believe that co-educational education provides them with a much richer schooling experience. Um, and I, I suppose it's it's traditional. They're both academically rigorous schools, um, but uh, certainly when I was at school, it was a, it was very traditionally academic um, and and quite uh, quite old fashioned in its approach. Whereas Brighton is very much a, a forward thinking, innovative, and creative school, and I much prefer uh, that kind of approach to particularly teaching and learning, where I believe that the more exciting, the more inspirational you make. Uh, your lessons, the greater the impact will be on the children. Do you wish you had gone to Absolutely, Brighton? absolutely. How do you think your life would have been different? Um, I think uh, I'm in later life, I've found quite a lot of creativity inside myself, which uh, had never been tapped in any in any way, shape or form within my school. Um, and I think, uh, I think, had I attended Brighton College, uh, some some of the skills that I have in that area, um, I'd have had a greater opportunity to 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 flourish within those. You would have been an artist. I don't think so, but um, I think uh, creativity in its more general sense. So um, I, I love the creativity of, of of setting up new schools, the creativity associated with planning something and seeing it through to to fruition. Um, and I think that has taken me time to develop in a way that had I gone to Brighton would have been within me from 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 my school days. Mm. I mean, one of the challenges of setting up a new school is the teacher body. It's probably the company culture of mm. the school. Mm. How do you manage teachers? Is there a performance basis how does that work we do and uh, we uh, well firstly it, it happens before we've appointed so the recruitment phase is vital we've got to get people through the door who have the right attitude for, for for startup and the right attitude for working in a school with very high expectations so we work very hard we, we get thousands of applications for teaching posts so we are able to screen teachers very carefully and ensure we get the very best in front of the children We have a very high expectations, in both in terms of what we um, what we look our teachers to achieve, but also in in terms of what's going on within the classroom. We don't accept um, run of the mill lessons, uh, which which many teachers will um, look to teach uh, at times of fatigue or or you know as you're approaching the the um, uh, the summer holidays. Um, so so we we have very high expectations of we, what we expect them to do inside the classroom, but also outside it as well how do you measure the fulfillment of those expectations so we we have um our professional review process looks at all areas of a teacher's professional practice and and quite uniquely it involves the children themselves so the children actually feed into the appraisal process of their their own teachers they because rate their teachers they, they do we believe that uh, no one is in a better position to evaluate how well their teacher is doing than the children themselves. How much does that contribute to their overall it, evaluation? It, I mean, we don't have a we don't have a ratio, okay. but it, it forms part of a discursive um, professional review. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, so the the um, the the results of the pupil feedback um, are very much shared with with teachers and discussed with teachers. And also, our professional review process has a has a career focus for the teachers because. We believe that one of the issues with with some international schools 
is that teachers can feel sort of cut off from professional development. They can feel that paths of promotion can, can often be closed off to them being in an international environment. So we very much work to make sure that teachers arrive as excellent teachers, but leave us as better teachers, hopefully going on to a promotion. And uh, we don't see that necessarily as a, as a bad thing. Our retention is very high. Is there a performance-based pay or is there a... We don't currently have performance-related pay. Mm. Is there a performance-related retention? Like you say, students seem to have a certain grade point averaged or... When we're looking at our teaching body, um, we have the luxury, as pretty much every international school I've worked in does, that uh, that teachers are on a fixed-term contract. So um, you have various points where if you are unhappy with the performance of a, a teaching member of staff, there is an opportunity for you to um, employ someone who will be able to deliver the standards that you expect. Mm. One thing I noticed with teachers at some international schools is that their evaluation is very much dependent on the performance of the students. How do you see that? Um, obviously, uh, they are ultimately accountable for how their pupils perform. And I think that's absolutely right that, uh, that uh, teachers should be held accountable for the performance of their children, particularly when it comes to um, the older children and crucial examination groups. And uh, there are ways of doing that in a fair and transparent way. There's something you can use called you know, residuals, where you look at how uh, children perform in different, with different teachers against their own performance. And yes, absolutely, I feel that uh, teachers very much should be held accountable for that. Do you think there might be some unintentional side effects of that? Because what I've seen is that teachers start competing for FaceTime with their students. Okay. Because the more time you spend with a student, the more influence you have over their grades. So in essence, it'll lead to teachers crowding out the schedules of their students because each of them wants to get Yeah, and I think I think that's um, that's a danger in schools that don't don't have a whole or we we call ourselves a college, obviously, as as, as we're Brighton College, but having a whole college approach uh, to um, performance management and looking at a holistic picture and having a, a a strong structure that facilitates those things not happening. Uh, that makes sure that children aren't being dragged in lots of different directions. Um, that that is the role of the leadership team to ensure that every decision that every practitioner is making within the school is based on the best interests of the children. Mm. And I think the danger in some schools where perhaps the leadership isn't working and functioning as well as it could is that you know that that certain powerful departments or powerful teachers can 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 exert that kind of pressure but in a, a school where the leaders have a, a very good understanding of what's going on on the ground that that really shouldn't be happening mm. if you look at the teacher body you work with in bangkok and the teachers you worked with maybe in abu dhabi or in other places do you notice a different kind of teacher that comes to Bangkok? What, what I can speak about is Brighton College. And uh, I, I've noticed a very clear type of teacher that applies for a position at, at Brighton College. Because of our reputation for innovation, um, it tends to be very creative, um, inspirational teachers um, who realize that having Brighton College on their on their CV is, is great for their professional development and their career progression. 
Um, it tends to be um, teachers who who understand the unique benefits of a of an independent school education. So if you see two groups of teachers, one is from Abu Dhabi, one is in Abu Dhabi, one is in Thailand. Could you tell them apart? Uh, not not within Brighton. I think um, it, from visits I've made to other other schools, there's definitely. A, I mean, within Abu Dhabi, um, the financial benefits for teachers are, are, are relatively high. There's no taxation, for example. Um, and in some of the other schools I visit, I do notice a certain type of teacher within uh, within that environment, and a certain type of teacher drawn to some of the more established schools here here in Bangkok. I, I think there's some truth in that, and obviously different locations will appeal to different individuals. But within Brighton, I, I mean, when we were interviewing our, our teaching staff, one of our early questions, obviously, is, you know, what do you know about Thailand? What do you know about Bangkok? What attracts you to this role? And um, without exception, uh, Brighton College is the first thing that they mention. Many of them, Thailand, Bangkok was 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 a long way down their list of considerations. It mm. was wanting to work at a, a a new school with such a strong reputation of, uh, of Brighton College. How would you say are the student bodies different between the locations? Yeah, that's that's that that is um, that that is another very interesting question. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and the more I've lived and worked overseas, and uh, you know, this is the the, the, the fourth uh, very uh, I've worked in four very uh, distinctive, very disparate regions. The more convinced I am of the uh, of the uniformity of humanity, and particularly, but surely uh, there must have been some. The, there are there are there are cultural know. quirks. <laughs> Which ones every, have you noticed in every location? There are cultural quirks in every location, but having. A strong uh, proportion of expatriate pupils in the school, um, and there is definitely a familiarity for me about working with um, people from a wide variety of nationalities that find themselves in, a, in an expat environment where they're, um, they're, they're, the, the similarity between all of the locations I've worked has held that at its heart. I think um, in for terms expats, of, I can see that. In, in terms of cultural for... differences... Um, maybe it's in relation to, I, I mean, I, if you've uh, read much of Hofstede's um, work on, on, yes. on cultural differences, I mean, I think that the, the places I've tended to um, locate have, have, have been locations where power distance is, is quite important in a way that in Britain, things tend to be much flatter. Hierarchies aren't given such, such great emphasis. It must be nice if you're um, in a position of authority. Um, well, I mean, I, I, have, I, I really do favor quite a flat management structure. I like whoever they are within the organization. If they've got a suggestion, if they've got a, something we can improve, if they've got an idea, then I don't really care where it comes from. If it's a good idea, it's a good idea. So that, in a sense, most of the locations um, I've, I've been, I've needed to be quite conscious of that power distance mm. relationship and how that's different from uh, from uh, the, the cultural norms within the UK. Do you feel Thai students should challenge the authority of their teachers more? From my experiences with um, with, with, with Thai children, I, I think that um, the importance of getting their ideas out there. I think they have. The, the, the pupils that I, I've worked with, many of them have, have great ideas and great, great suggestions that they can make and, and making sure that they're able to articulate those, I think, is, is, is really crucial. Um, do I think they should challenge authority more? Gosh, that's, a, that's quite a loaded question. Maybe our, our children here are unique. Um, I, I feel that they, they speak up when they need to. I, I feel that they get involved in things that they make really positive contributions to things like our pupil council. I don't 
see them as shrinking violets in any way, shape or form. Should they challenge our authority more? We're not, we're not a particularly authoritarian environment, so it probably isn't a relevant question. So it's no. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Okay. Did you challenge authority a lot in your school days? Um, I, I was certainly quite, I, I was quite reasonably political mm. in my younger days. I, I, well, not, no, not, I found them a little dull. <laughs> I, I was, I was reasonably political. I certainly spoke my mind, but I was respectful of those traditions. And, uh, I was certainly respectful of the teachers that I had who, who, many of whom I had great respect for. Mm. Talking about the students you have here. And the, what we talked about earlier, the workload they might have. What do you think is a healthy academic workload for a high school student counting everything like? Okay, I, that's a really good question. And it's something that I, many prospective parents come to us with fears about in their, their children's existing schools. Uh, many have um, a, a culture where excessive tutoring is, is very much the norm. Uh, whether this is sanctioned by the schools or not, I, I, I don't know, but it's certainly impacting on the, the, the rich family lives that the children are having. Um, yes, homework or prep, as we call it, is very important. And uh, it, it's a vital uh, component in a child becoming independent and, and excelling within school. Um, but so too are is exercise, healthy eating, uh, time with uh, with family. Mm. Um, those sorts of things, I believe, in in certain instances here, um, are at risk from an excessive workload and excessive tutorial culture within the environment here. If you put this into numbers, how uh, okay, many hours should kids be in school, sure. and how much prep work should they do? Uh, absolutely. Um, so, so our our school day, um, and obviously, we've 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 thought about this a great deal. Our, our school day takes children from 7.30 um, till if they stay and do all of our activities till till four o'clock in the afternoon, which is a long school day. We therefore believe that given that long school day, um, that um, certainly as they're getting older, um, no more than, than two to three hours for the very oldest pupils, um, expectation of workload after uh, after school. 7.30 to four and then another two hours. If they're If they're approaching their examinations, um, if they're younger than that, then then obviously our expectations are, are much less. And for our youngest children within school, our expectations on prep are that they have a, a number of core prep activities for the weekend, but that the evenings are very much family time when, yes, parents should be reading with their children and having certain educationally focused activities, but that the, the main focus is on that rich environment at home. And Do you know how many hours your students spend commuting to school uh we do we have quite a lot of information about that and obviously bear in mind this information is based on our pre-prep school which right. is um young, much younger children and our, our school day for the youngest children is, is much shorter than that that i've described for the eldest ones um so for some they live locally and it's it's a very quick uh, commute in for others um you know they live in the city center but fortunately they're moving against the traffic uh so we we don't really have anyone that, that spends longer than sort of half an hour, 40 minutes each way. Half an hour, 40 minutes is your... Yeah. What do parents ask you when they enlist their kids in school? What is maybe something they should ask you, but they don't? Um, I've never had anyone ask me um, the universities that the teachers went to, um, the schools that they've come from. I think that's a very important question. I think that, that as, a, as a prospective parent, if I were looking around a school as a prospective parent, my first question 
would be where do you get your your teachers from where do you recruit them can you talk me through some of their cvs um because if i'm aspirational for my children um and i my child's being taught maths by a teacher that um you know hasn't excelled at mathematics uh, you know they're not going to excel at mathematics if i'm my son's being taught um english by a by a teacher perhaps for whom english is not their then their native language then the degree to which they can excel in that subject is 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 much less so what are some questions they do ask and you think they shouldn't um okay yeah things logistical things um they're always surmountable um so a lot of uh, prospective parents will will um you know ask very relevant questions but about the the nitty gritty um about uh, you know just general logistical things like you know do you allow them to take their blazer off in lessons and these sorts of these sorts of things and um i think it's about it's about um getting that that first visit to a school is absolutely fundamental um because obviously the fact that you as a prospective parent you've taken the time to go and visit a school it, it's vital that in those those earliest visits you you get those key questions answered so you can really decide well is this a school i would like my children to be educated in mm -hmm. I mean, Brighton is not the cheapest school. So what are your thoughts on the pricing of education? Um, it's constantly at the forefront of our of our mind and, and making sure that we can deliver the best possible education for our parents at a, at a price point that is within reach of the majority of parents that we want to appeal to. Um, we do make efforts to minimize costs as much as we physically can for our parents. But equally, we have a strong scholarship and bursary program for parents who for whom their children are, are best placed at this school but perhaps um uh, the, the the fees may well be an issue and uh, the british independent sector has ha, has a long tradition of bursaries and scholarships which enable the the bursaries so so bursaries um would be um uh, would be a reduction in fees um for parents who are unable to meet the financial demands of uh, the, the or the financial fee point um and scholarships are um uh, are an award for pupils who who show exceptional academic performance and often come with some form of fee remission so you have your own kids with you in bangkok how old are they so my eldest is nine. he's mm -hmm. uh, harry um i have my middle child is is bella she's six, and i have oliver who's one as well okay well it's I can see you light up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so where do they go to school? They, uh, the eldest two come here uh -huh. and the youngest is, is still at home at the moment. So he will join us when, he, when he's old enough. Isn't that a bit of a difficult situation for the teachers teaching them? Uh, well, I, it, hasn't, uh, it, it, well, it hasn't presented any issues so far. I am... Um, Uh, but then I, yeah, I mean, it, it, potentially it can be, but um, I, I mean, I'm always very, I, I, I'd like to consider myself quite a relaxed parent when it comes to their, their, their education in, in the fact that I have absolute faith in the teaching staff at the school. And, and I, I would like to think, I mean, actually we can, we, we have a, the wife of, um, of one of my children's teachers from last year here. I would like to think that, um, that, that uh, they would, they would perceive me as a caring parent, but one that had complete faith in what they were doing within the classroom. Mm -hmm. Is there, how do you think your job affects your relationship with your kids? Uh, I would say thus far only positively. 
and uh, the the opportunity as a parent to uh, have a rich professional life, but also during my working day to bump into my children is is something that is an absolute pleasure for me. Isn't there like a some form of mental comparing or mental mode switching or what's the uh i i, I my children have always known me as i mean I've, i i i've been a headmaster of the school my children are at since they you know couldn't speak so you so they've grown into it um so i i think that um I think they consider it to be normal as as, as things stand. I, I think it it may become more challenging as they reach their teenage years, but that's that's something we have to we ha we have to um, plan for if uh, for for any eventuality that results there. Are there things that you feel you did as a student that you wouldn't want to kids repeat that? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think one thing I would like them to have that I perhaps didn't at a young age is um is a much clearer idea of of where they're headed i think that um some of the careers advice or lack of that i got in school um my school was very much you you go to university you do an academic subject it, it doesn't really matter which one and then you succeed as a result of um of doing a a very competitive degree course at a very competitive university um, and I think I would like my children to have um, a much clearer idea of where they're headed at a at a younger age, um, to, to set that into a bit more context rather than just having a love of learning for its own sake, also having a love of learning with an actual, actual destination in mind. Mm -hmm. As a founding headmaster of Brighton, you mentioned there are a few things you have to do that you know you wouldn't have to do as a headmaster. I think one of the questions i had is were you the person who picked the location or what's at what point did you come in no i i came in um after that had been selected um i we have a team in the uk who works with our uh, our local investors here on and wherever we operate on location on initial campus designs um and then i i became Uh, the the in the earlier stages, I was effectively a consultant on the evolution of those designs, mm. but those things had all been selected prior to my appointment. You mentioned local investors. Yes. Uh, what's the ownership structure of Brighton? Okay, so we um, Brighton College um, International Schools is a is 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 a body within Brighton College UK um, who partners up with investment, uh, usually property companies wherever we're operating, because they as a as a charitable trust uh, which uh, brighton college is they obviously don't have the large reserves of, of capital in order to build a campus uh, such as this um so we then set up as an independent entity and and rent out the campus back from our property partners so you the kind of the campus is owned by a property company and then That's brighton correct. college leases it from them yes and we have a board of governors which has um, representatives from Brighton College on it and representatives from our investor partners too. So is it joint owned as well? Uh, no, it's, it's, it's owned and operated by our investors. Um, but obviously there's joint governance between the UK and um, between our investor partners. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any conflicts of interest there? Um, it, there ha certainly hasn't been thus far. Um, as as the college grows and those strategic decisions become a bit, bit, become more significant, 
Um, obviously, there's 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 going to be uh, there's going to be interests and discussions, but it's a very cordial relationship. And and Brighton College International Schools is very clear in selecting their partners that they have to absolutely 100% share uh, Brighton College's vision for what uh, an outstanding school looks like. And uh, and our partners are completely bought into delivering um, an exceptional Brighton College here in, in Bangkok. Is this structure unique or is that pretty no, common? No, it's pretty standard. Okay. So what is it uh, that you see bringing new to Thailand? I mean, obviously, you're not the first international school. What are some new values Brighton is bringing to the educational landscape here. Okay, well, I, I sense that we have a number of unique elements to our, our education here, um, and which certainly um, our visitors to the college and our prospective parents seem to view as a something of a breath of fresh air. Um, we really do value our children as unique individuals in a way that certainly our, our parents talk about uh, their schooling experiences in the past haven't haven't met. And um, being able to get to know our children as unique individuals and make them first-class versions of themselves rather than second-class versions of someone else is is very unique within the city. Um, our academic excellence, uh, Brighton is the, 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 the highest-ranked school in terms of combined GCSE and A-level results. It's got the highest A-level results a co-educational school has ever achieved. Um, our international schools have repeated that success. So we have that academic excellence in a way that no other school in Bangkok does. Coupled with that, um, we don't do that in, in, in such a way that the children feel like they're being hothoused. It's through inspiring children. So inspirational teaching and providing children with a balanced life really does reap the best rewards in terms of academic results. And um, I think that we're unique in Bangkok in, in recognizing that. Mm. Do you teach your pre-prep pre -prep kids Mandarin? We do, yes. Yeah, so, so uh, uh, Some people might say, really? Like, isn't that a bit too much when you're talking about, you know, give kids sure, a free sure. life? Like, yeah. why do they have to learn Mandarin? Um, okay, so, so um, I mean, your question suggests that, um, uh, the, that there's some chore associated with learning a language, which I, I, I would say the absolute inverse is true and learning a Learning a foreign language can be one of the richest experiences that someone of any age can have. And um, speaking specifically about Mandarin, our, uh, we're, we're very lucky to have a, a UK-chained um, native Mandarin speaker who's worked at some of the top boarding schools in the UK. And she is able to absolutely inspire the children in a way that, um, you know, I've never seen anything like it within, uh, within the teaching of Mandarin. But our curricular creativity, Brighton has a, there are a number of innovations that Brighton has, has um, been credited with. So Brighton was the first ever school to have a science laboratory, for example. So were we sitting uh, a couple of hundred years ago, um, if I suggested that we should look to the sciences, um, the, the educational thinking of the day, particularly within some of the more historical independent schools, was that, you know, classics were everything. Uh, why would you look at sci sciences a new It's a new area of academia. Um, you know, we don't need to worry ourselves with science. Um, so they were the first to recognize this and have a dedicated science laboratory. And, you know, if I were suggesting now that we remove science from the curriculum, um, you would rightly uh, raise your eyebrows. Um, it was the first ever school to have a gymnasium. So recognizing the importance of health and well-being and fitness amongst the, 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 their children. Um, and again, it was the first school to introduce the compulsory teaching of Mandarin because teaching a foreign language, yes, 
uh, our children uh, have the opportunity to learn French, have the opportunity to learn Spanish. But teaching a true non-European foreign language to, to native English-speaking children really does um, uh, open their mind in a way that um, teaching a modern European language doesn't to native English speakers. You also teach them Minecraft. We teach them programming. Um, we teach them uh, and within that. Minecraft is a very sophisticated tool. It's a very sophisticated tool for uh, within education. And um, it uh, what it does is it facilitates our younger children um, developing early algorithms and um, teaching them the nuts that we, we have. Uh, Would you encourage people like who have kids who are like on their iPad all day long. Oh, I, I, certainly, like, I, I, say, I certainly more. wouldn't encourage any child to be on their iPad all day long. Um, that, that would be a, a grave error. Um, a range of rich experiences of different things is, is what, uh, is what makes childhood so special. And it's, it's the way that children find their, their true loves. Um, we have, uh, so to give you some, some other examples within our, From the youngest age, we're able to, to teach children basic programming techniques. And we use robotics. We use um, Kodu, which is a sort of um, a, an early coding language, which, which helps them to develop their, their, their skills in that area. Uh, we also have Raspberry Pis that the children use, which uh, allows them to construct a simple motherboard computer and start running programs and do various projects based on that. And through showing them how computers work, which is a relatively new innovation in, 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 in teaching, it really improves on uh, what was basically teaching them how, soft, how to use software, uh, which was, was, was um, very much the fashion within the old curriculum. And um, by actually teaching them how computers work rather than just how to use software, it means that whatever, however the software changes, whatever happens in the future, they're best prepared for adapting to those changes. Mm. Providing all those opportunities to kids um, isn't cheap. It has a price. Can you talk about that price? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, if you are you are you a parent? Do you do you have your own children? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. So, for any parents listening. <laughs> Um, a Raspberry Pi uh, motherboard computer uh, starts at about £25. You can get one on Amazon. You, you could be pestered by your children into buying a, a laptop, a new MacBook Pro or whatever um, uh, for, for you know, closer to £1,000 or even more than £1,000 with the current exchange rates. Um, Sorry, I should probably talk in Barch. And, uh, uh, I think we, we you know, like, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, 25 pounds, 1,000 pounds, all very affordable, uh, especially if we talk about how much it costs for a whole year. Is, are, your price, are your prices on the website? Can yes, yeah, there? our fees are absolutely in the public domain. Okay. One thing I hear about public school, uh, school fees is the school fees are just one part. And every, then there's everything else, like all the commuting, all the exertions, yeah, yeah. all that. How much do the school fees make up of the total expenses you so, have? So our tuition fees cover all of our resources. Our tuition fees cover everything with the exception of uh, if they go for bus transport or if they have catered lunches. Um, occasionally some residential trips as well would be additional. So you would say they're about 80% of the total expense, 90%? Well, I mean, some of our parents choose to have packed lunches um, and come in on their, um, uh, with their own transport. If they, if they go for that option, it's very much 100%. Mm. So what about the people who can't afford to send their kids to a school like Brighton? 
the majority of the population in Thailand goes to government schools. What are some things you have seen or where you perceive Thailand could improve its educational policy? What could Thailand change to make its education system as a whole better? Any education system um, will will get their education right if they invest in their teachers, if they ensure that the the um, uh, the schools are recruiting from the very top pool of graduates. Um, then they will um, that that will automatically improve an education system, regardless of the country. If you look at the PISA rankings, the countries at the very top of the PISA rankings are those that hold education and 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 t the teaching profession in the highest regard. The PISA rankings are the uh, the international comparison rankings between the performance of various countries, um, and those countries where um, where teachers are, uh, are provided with the the most competitive packages automatically recruit the very best uh, graduates to go into teaching um so so as as a start making sure that the country is 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 drilling down on getting the best people in the classroom and the most hey your teachers more um it, it sounds simple um it it it's not all about pay it's 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 about making it an attractive profession it's about making it an aspirational profession in the same way as the law is an aspirational profession and medicine that? is an aspirational profession um well pay is certainly one component of that but raising the profile of the profession um highlighting the benefits of working within the profession um providing regular training uh to ensure that people's skills are forever improving showing that the the, the profession is highly valued um, providing the profession with autonomy um, and 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 a voice within um, within the development of education as a whole, um, all of those things combine to make the teaching professional and profession an aspirational profession. Mm. You mentioned the PISA rankings, and when I look at those, I see kind of two competing systems at the very top. Absolutely, maybe one is South Korea, Singapore, China that has a very strong tutoring, rote learning, and just spending a lot of time in academic pursuit. And then there's countries like Finland who mm -hmm. are like, we're not going to have private schools. We're not going to have homework. We're not going to have like, we're not going to have tests, which seems to be the complete opposite. It's the delightful irony of the, the PISA rankings. And I think that in essence, it cap encapsulates um, a perfect education um, because it does require all, an element of all of those components. And I think one of the things the British education system does very well is is marrying those two demands the demand for academic rigor and the demand for hard work and also the demand for creativity problem solving creative thinking so why is it that those two separate systems are at the top and not the british system it's a very good question and i think um part of the answer to that question and if incidentally we were to take british independent schools regardless of their selectivity status they would come at the very top of the PISA rankings and an analysis of performance of British independent schools who, who have put children forward for the PISA comparison test shows that British independent schools outperform any single nation. And I think British independent schools more than any schools within Britain um, epitomize that balance between academic rigor, curricular creativity and um, developing the sorts of softer personality-based skills in children that the, the Finnish system does so well. Do you think there's a risk of becoming too soft? Um, I, I think that um, there's always, certainly some of the more um, out there 
initiatives that are coming out of Finland um, may well have a degree of merit, but maybe taking things to the nth degree where some of the potential negative consequences of those may not be fully thought out. Okay. Is there any particular one that you comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, so the the, the approach to assessment, um, I, I can absolutely see its its validity. Um, but were a nation such as the UK, which has has um, all of its tertiary education system based around um, quite a rigid assessment scheme um, when children reach the age of sixteen and eighteen. Um, I think uh, progression into university uh, and 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 some of the assessment strategies that exist within universities, children may not be fully set up uh, for what exists within those within those system. Mm. So, if parents want to send their kids to Brighton, where can they find out more? How can they get to know your school better? Uh, the, well, the very best way is to come and visit us, and uh, I would strongly recommend uh, that if a parent is considering any school that they spend as much time as they can visiting it before they make the decision. Uh, we have a lot of information on our website, uh, which is at www.brightoncollege.ac.th. And uh, full information is there along with contact details. And, you know, I'm happy to meet parents individually and, and, and show them around the campus. It's one of one of the great delights of, uh, of working as a headmaster is getting to meet lots of lots, lots of people and, and, and show them around what we've created here. Is there anything else you would like to share with prospective parents or future students? Um, I mean, I think I've probably uh, I've probably covered everything within within our discussions. I mean, I, I really speaking as a parent, um, I know that the uh, anxiety that can exist when you're thinking about choosing a school for your for your children. Indeed, it's it's probably the most important decision you make as a parent. Uh, so I really I think we understand at Brighton what a crucial decision that is, and um, and t you know taking time to speak through all the questions that, that that a prospective parent might have is something that that I think we do very well here and um, certainly our, our high enrollment rate as a, as a response to visits is, is is testament to that. Thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure having you here and it was really interesting to get an insight into the ins, well, behind the scenes of an international school and to see how Brighton conducts its, well, schooling and business here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been, been my pleasure. Thank you. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com and the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time.